and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity Podcast. Christine Burns. In July 1981, 12 young Asian men were arrested in dawn raids across Bradford and charged with conspiracy to make explosives and to cause explosions. They became known as the Bradford Twelve. The young men from the United Black Youth League coined the phrase, self-defence is no offence. The community in Bradford was facing aggressive invasion by coachloads of skinheads. They had seen how Asians in London's Southall area were not protected by the local police when these attacks occurred. Black youngsters looking on concluded they would have to defend themselves. In doing that, they became themselves targets for police attention. Almost a year after their arrests, following a trial that exposed the scale and intensity of everyday racist violence and the extent of police racism faced by their communities, the 12 men were all acquitted. With me today is a colleague of mine, Shanaz Ali. Nowadays, Shanaz is a highly respected senior manager in the NHS. She's Associate Director for Equality, Diversity and Human Rights at NHS Northwest. Thirty years ago, however, Shanaz was in the thick of these events as one of the young Asian women whose involvement tends to be forgotten. Shanaz, welcome to Just Plain Sense. To start off with, could you tell me a little bit about your background? Your, your family came uh, to Britain from Pakistan when you were a child, right? Yes, my family came in 1965. We followed our father, who came in 1963. Um, I was the youngest of four children at the time, um, three and a half years old, and we landed in Keithley. Um, I don't have many memories of Keithley at all, but I do have memories when we uh, moved, within a year we moved to Bradford um, on a council estate called Sloan Square in Bradford 8. Um, And I do have memories of um, living there and being called all sorts of names and my brothers coming back, having been beaten up occasionally. Um, So it didn't feel like a great experience. And my memories of the first day at school was... Also, it was all white except one Asian girl whose name I still remember to this day. Um, she was an in, um, a Sikh girl called um, Sukwinda. So, um, not didn't I didn't feel safe. I can I can remember feeling not feeling safe as a child. So you didn't really feel that you were part of uh, the British community. Were you sort of encouraged to look inwards on on your, on your own community there? I think at that time there wasn't a big Asian community, Pakistani community. We were, we were one of the first kind of um, handful of families to arrive in Bradford. So it wasn't a big community. Um, there was more kind of men, uh, Pakistani men that came from our the, the region that we're from or the villages that we were from that lived nearby. Then we used to have lots of men visiting at weekends and stuff but it didn't feel like a sense of families and communities so it was quite isolating and I suppose I went to school and I didn't speak any English 
So that must have been daunting as well. <laughs> so what sort of friends did you have at school then? I think um, eventually I kind of did make friends, but it's interesting that my first, very first friends were predominantly Asian. When I left Wetley Lane, within a year we moved to another area because my father and mother bought their own first back-to-back house on Morningside, um, which is again near the Lister's Mill because my father worked there. Um, and I went to a school called Lillycroft um, Infants and Junior School and there was a few more Asian girls there and I think we became kind of friends. It was, And the friend that I had on the street was another black girl, Jamaican family that lived um, on, on the next street to us. So it was interesting that as immigrant communities we kind of stuck with each other and my other best friends were Yugoslavian. So if we're placing ourselves perhaps around about the end of the 70s, you're a teenager. Apart from the the individual name-calling, what other feelings did you have about...? I think by the time I was a teenager, um, I'd probably kind of internalised the racism and stuff. And I, I think within me, I probably thought that I, you know, now I had a Yorkshire accent, I had also some English friends as well at school and things I was you know I was quite popular I wasn't unpopular I think I started to then think that the more white I behaved um, in every way and pretended I couldn't speak my own language and things that I'd be more accepted so I did go through that turmoil in from my young age to a teenager Um, and I think what was really eye-opening for me was when I was doing my A-levels and I used to go to the Central Library all day Saturday to because I couldn't afford to buy the books and a lot of the ref- re- use the reference books. That's where I met um, Tariq Mahmood um, and Tolochan, um, who were originally part of... The f- they, they, they were the f- um, first people that set up the Asian youth movement um, and were now thinking about moving on from the Asian youth movement to a United Black Youth League, looking at developing a much more inclusive um, movement, which was about all non-white people because we all experienced racism in a similar way. Um, Tariq started to talk to me when I used to go to the library um, in the cafe, and I think the... 1981 Nationality Act was going through at the time and there was lots of um, pre um, when the bill was going through um, there was going to be like demos and pickets that they were organising and things and he started to talk to me about that and I think my first response to him was why would I want to go to that because I'm a British citizen and that's when he started to educate me about racism <laughs> <laughs> and imperialism and everything because at that time in other parts of the country there were attacks from uh, skinheads in yeah. the National Front. Yeah, I can remember hearing of attacks and my father and, and the other men in the community kind of really being worried about the young men in the families and especially my two brothers um, who were older than me. Um, you know, they were always telling them to come straight back from work and not to get involved because they were skinheads. And... Um, so every time we saw anybody that remotely looked like a skinhead, we used to be kind of absolutely terrified. So setting up the Black Youth Movement, then you were involved right from the beginning. How many of you were there? 
I think it kind of slowly grew. Um, I was at Bradford College then um, doing my A-levels, and I suppose the, the kind of recruitment was from the students at the college and also young people from the community. Um, it was predominantly young men because obviously there, there wasn't that many Asian um, young women around at the time certainly um, the, those that were at the college were kind of too terrified to join so there's only about uh, three or four young women and predominantly probably um, about 15 or so young men Okay, so when we're coming on in a moment to talk about the Bradford 12 we're talking about a substantial num- part of the black youth movement Yeah, the subs- yeah, uh, substantial part of the youth movement okay. yeah. what, what, did, what did you set to be your aims then? I think our aims were to kind of raise the, uh, people's awareness in terms of you know um, the issues that young people were facing and why they were facing and I think for me it was quite powerful because all of a sudden I could really understand what was happening to me I suppose before that I always kind of put myself under the microscope and thought I was the problem and I think for me the the education part of um, people like Tariq um, establishing the youth movement was that they did spend time trying to educate us and had to have sessions on looking at imperialism and racism and immigration and things like that so I think that was quite educational because you don't learn that Mm -hmm. at school so all of a sudden I could then um, understand that actually what was happening to me was no fault of me, you know. Um, it was the situation I was in and the context and society I was living in. So that was really quite empowering. And also um, through... W- w- so our aim was to d- develop awareness, but also to identify um, what, you know, b- things that we could... Um, um, mobilise and, and um, campaign for as well so we got involved quite quickly with the Anwar Ditta campaign Anwar Ditta was a woman who was desperately trying to get her three children who were born in Pakistan because as a young woman she went back to Pakistan she got married there, had her first three children there, she came back to the UK and the the immigration um, and home office would not believe that these were her children and um, so that she fought for many years on her own and then we kind of picked up the campaign and had you know lots of um, demonstrations meetings all sorts of different things and I think for me what was quite powerful is when we won that campaign and then we also got involved in Gary Pemberton campaign which was he was a black security guard in in Bradford College and one night the police came um, to the student union where he used to be the security guard and ended there was some problem and they ended up arresting him and charging him and that was another campaign that we picked up and decided to to really take it on um, board and won and I think it gave me a sense of kind of you know this is quite powerful you know Mm -hmm. you know um, sort of voicing one's um, opinions and challenging what's going on um, and mobilising at the same time and bringing people out to support us was was quite a powerful thing to do. As as young people being activists, how do you feel that you were viewed by, by the older generation? I think from my personal experience, my father, on the one hand, um, was 
he was quite a humanist um, um, if I describe him now I'm not sure that's how he would have described himself so on the one hand he was quite proud that I was standing up for people's rights and all of this but he he said but you're not a boy um, I wish your brothers might might be interested in this but I think at that time there was a lot of you know, young Asian women didn't do those sorts of things. You didn't go out, you know, shouting head off and standing out some police stations and magistrates' courts and crown courts and God knows what. So I think um, it for, for and for young the young men that were involved, it was all, um, you know, again it was it was seen as almost like you know you're going to get into trouble. Mm. And I think that generation of our parents, um, it was you know let's keep our heads down and get on with things not cause any problems we're not in our own country so therefore we cannot challenge in this way so it was a difficult balance and and at times I had to you know lie and say I'm going to the library or I'm going to my friends when I'd be going to meetings or I'd end up in a demonstration in Coventry like when Satnam Gill got killed a young um, Sikh guy was stabbed to death in Coventry by um, racist youths and we had a big, it was a massive big demonstration and I desperately needed, wanted to go. We'd organised coaches and my father said I couldn't go and I kind of lied to him and went and when I came back he'd see me on the TV <laughs> right at the front of the march. So I suppose it was it was a very difficult thing to balance because also I think he respected the fact that I wasn't going out and doing what other girls might have done with boys and all of that I was actually doing something quite political but on, but he couldn't condone it and he couldn't accept it because I was a girl yeah. as well so let's move on to the the arrests now what tell, tell me about the events that led up to those I think the the events that led up to this is um um Obviously, the the the, the troubles in, um, in Tottenham, um, Southall, you know, um, Brixton, Liverpool, subsequently, um, at all were going on, and we were following what was going on there. And again, the the, the main theme that was coming out of all those troubles was that the uh, the black communities were not protected in any way, mm. and actually, um, they were. The, the ones that were targeted by the police and the, and the, and the skinheads and, and the fascist groups as well. So we were then sort of having our meetings and discussing all of this and I think we have felt quite strongly that we had to do something to protect our, our own communities. Um, and I suppose and, and there was um, the skinheads were going to attack... Um, the, that weekend um, and I suppose what we decided to do was to, to prepare for that attack okay. in, w- in what way do you mean prepare? Prepare, well um, we decided to <laughs> um, I suppose make petrol bombs but only use them if we were going to need to use them um, and I suppose um, I wasn't involved in that part of it but um, I think the sad thing was, I think the young men once they'd made a crateful, they went to bury it, and and got seen by some nurse out of the nursing home across the field, and that's what I think um, started the police kind of investigating and stuff. And then between like the the Wednesday and um, the following week, you know, one by one, everybody was picked up. Um, who was at that meeting? And I suppose I'm I've been the invisible one because I was arrested but never charged. 
Okay. So, so the police were going around and systematically picking up, picking up people. Anybody that was, at, you know, taking connected for to the United Black Youth League. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, were you very frightened? Did you expect to be picked up? I think once I, th- the, so the first arrests I heard on the news, mm-hmm. uh, which was Tulochan and then it was Tharik, um, they were the kind of the leaders of the United Black mm-hmm. Youth League. Um, and I think I then followed the news and in them days we didn't have mobiles so we couldn't ring each other up so I did then um, by the Saturday I went over to Jay Shamin, who was one of the Bradford 12 as well he was a student in Bradford um, at Bradford University I went over to his place and while I was there they came to arrest him um, and I sort of then went back home and, and almost w- didn't sleep for a few nights expecting them to come at any mm-hmm. time to pick me up as well. And then eventually they did, and I think it was by this time it was the weekend. And what was interesting is they they came some like early hours at 7 o'clock in the morning, but I was almost waiting for them. Mm-hmm. And we were also in the middle of Ramadan, so I was fasting. So what was interesting is they came to pick me up. It was a very traditional house, Pakistani house. They opened the door, and there I was, you know, my shalwar kameez. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, well, they didn't say we're arresting you. They said, we want to question you about this. And then my brother wanted... Uh, my brother was aware, <coughs> so he said he wanted to come with me and they said oh you don't need to and he said yes I am um, so we, I went to the police station and that was questioned for quite a few hours um, what, what was the line of questioning? What I think the trying? line of questioning was about the United Black Youth League my involvement, what were we doing you know and they, all this you know um, it felt like they were trying to kind of make out that the young men were all like just troublemakers this wasn't a political thing this was just like you know mm-hmm. Asian kind of youth wanting to create trouble um, and stuff and and what was interesting is that every time I kind of denied my involvement in something they did have photos of me being on a on the on the pickets outside magistrates court in Bradford when we did the Bar- Gary Pemberton um, campaign and things like that so they were so obviously they'd been gathering kind of evidence against each one of us. But they, in the end, they didn't decide to to proceed against you. So you weren't part of the. I think 12. they did place me at the meeting where the conspiracy was supposed to have taken place. But I think it was a it was a decision um, that they took because a political and I think gender played a major mm-hmm. role within that because. I was the only Asian female. If there was 12 youths, the community probably wouldn't go in uproar because mm-hmm. they'd, they'd just brand them and the media would as a just, you know, these tearaways yeah. who just want to cause trouble. I think the dynamics of that then being a young Asian woman being part of that, even if the community thought that I was in the wrong, they would have there would have been an uproar mm-hmm. um, having a young Asian woman um, charged as well. So I think I think till this day that that was a, a kind of like a political decision not to to do that because then the community wouldn't be behind behind us. Okay. So the the, the twelve were remanded. Um, they were all remanded um, and not allowed bail. I think the first bail was allowed three months later, and then slowly, one by one, they did get bail. Okay. So, what happened when it came to court? When it came to court, um, I think we had to challenge many things before the trial started. For example, the jury was all white, um, and we had um, 
a big demonstration in Leeds um, to challenge that as well. The um, the trial itself lasted nine weeks. We managed to, because it was a national campaign, we'd mobilised uh, all the student unions, trade unions, anti-fascist groups up and down the country. Um, we had immense support up and down the country. So we used to be able to maintain a substantial picket outside the court every day for the nine weeks that the trial went on. Um, and, you know, colleagues and, you know, um, would come from London, the Midlands, everywhere, up and down the country um, to be there. And, and the central point was that this was about people organising in their self-defence. Yes, the, the, yeah, the, their main defence was self-defence is no offence and, and, um, and that communities should be allowed to um, defend mm. themselves and especially when um, the state and the police are not there to protect us at mm. all. And, and actually one of the defendants, Tariq Mahmood, actually defended himself um, the others, we had 11 barristers and then Tariq defending himself. What, what's happened to the, those 12 in the 30 years since? Oh, um, what's interesting is that, you know, kind of people's lives were hugely impacted by all of that. You know, um, you know, some of the ones that were students possibly, you know, didn't finish off their degrees because all of that time that people took out for, for the campaign and then the trial... Um, and, I, and I suppose um, I haven't, over the, the 30 years, I suppose I haven't kept in touch with all of them. Um, and I think some of them just kind of disappeared because their families were not going to allow them to get involved in any anything like this again. They, they were all new to it anyway because um, the United Black Youth League was about a year old when this mm -hmm. happened. It wasn't... Um, um, so there was and nothing much to go back to. Yeah, there's nothing much to go back to. So some of them went, you know, I, I am in touch with Tariq, I'm in touch with Saeed. Um, you know, Tariq's written books since he's recently got a job um, as an academic in Lebanon. Um, but what's interesting is that there's no way that he would get jobs here. So, the, the, you know, there was an, a major impact on their lives about being part of the mainstream and, and stuff. I think each and every one of them in a different way has been impacted. Okay. And I suppose I was the invisible 13. <laughs> So, I mean, as you said, that was, that was July 1981 and it's 30 years on. How is that 30th anniversary being marked? Um, we're having an a, a event in Bradford on the, uh, Saturday the 16th um, in Manningham and to commemorate the event and also um, to talk about the, the impact of... Um, you know, imperialism and terrorism and Islamophobia. So what's different, um, you know, from 30 years ago to what's happening now in terms of young Asian youths, Muslim youths being picked up for terrorism mm. and stuff. So there's going to be, like, um, discussion and workshops in the afternoon and then we're going to have a social in the evening. And then the national event's going to be in London on the 23rd. So there's a whole group of people in London that have been organising that so I'm going to be chairing um, sessions at both. Okay. And, I mean, it's not so long ago that the English Defence League descended on, on, on Bradford. How do you think it's different now to, to in those days, 30 years ago? I think even um, I recently talking to Tariq at the weekend, actually, about the, the contrast of what happened in the Bradford 2000 mm. 
um, riot. Mm-hmm. And I, again, in the Bradford riot in 2000, I was personally affected by it because um, two of my nephews were arrested um, and one of the, the one of them ended up, um, because he was seen on um, camera, throwing stones on the night. He had, he got a sentence of five years. Um, he was only he, he was seventeen when he got arrested, but when the trial happened, he was eighteen. It's completely impacted on his life. He's not in a job since and stuff since he's come come out of prison. And my other nephew actually was just there, happened to be there at the wrong place right at the beginning of the events and um he was arrested charged no evidence whatsoever and and i think that um the the comparison is that you you had lawyers who actually sold the young men out as well mm. on the day if you'd have heard the language that they were kind of using um and also you didn't have any movement or campaign around this mm. and the outcomes were absolutely awful in terms of the sentences that the young men got they'd never been in trouble before they'd never even spoken to police before um and it's hugely impacted on all all Mm -hmm. their lives some of them were students some of them were working some of them very young just starting their lives and most of the ones that i'm in touch with in bradford including my two nephews have never worked again um and have been in a real depressive situation so you're saying that in some ways things just haven't changed. They haven't changed, but what what what's not happening now, which was happening in the late 70s and early 80s, was that there was a, a black left movement mm. and a white left movement, and there was um, mobilisation and challenge of what was happening in the system, but now there isn't. Um, and I think that's left a huge vacuum for young people as mm. well, not to be able to get together and mobilise and understand what's happening. Is, is that not balanced by the way that the wider community, I think, perhaps now responds to invasions by the by the EDL? Yeah, I think I think it is. I mean, they've just had um, an invasion of EDL in Halifax at the mm. weekend, and what was interesting when I was listening to the the news was it last night, um, the the arrests were mostly Asian names, um, you mm. know. So again, you know, nothing has changed. But no. what's changed is that there isn't a black left there arguing no. the point for those young young people and trying to get their communities to understand as well what's going on. I mean, it's quite, uh, in terms of the. Um, so in those in that way, it's it's worse. It's worse. I think it's worse than it was thirty years ago. I think thirty years ago, at least as young people, we were trying to understand and challenge, and and, and through the Asian youth movements and the Black um, Left movements, and working with our, you know, anti-fascist white um, groups as well. It was it was it was a different time. Now it just completely feels different. How do you think these kinds of experiences translate into your equalities work in the the NHS? I think for me to get involved in um, something like the Asian Youth Movement and subsequently United Black Youth League right at the beginning has profoundly impacted on me and my passion for equality, my passion for, you know, um, inclusion and my own personal experiences. So I think it was inevitable that I'd get into that kind of work. And I think also working on the campaigns developed all sorts of skills, and especially the Bradford 12 campaign, 
because the other 12, um, you know, the most of the United Black Youth League were inside, I was the only one kind of outside mm. as their voice. So I was having to kind of speak at meetings, uh, you know, nine, I was 19 and... Um, and also, you know, going around trying to do the leaflets, mobilise, all of that. And I think those are all transferable skills and coordinating not just a local campaign, but a national campaign. Um, and I came across many people that I learned so much from who, who supported the campaign and helped me um, uh, locally have, you know, make sure that the Bradford 12 had that voice. So I think that's had a huge impact on who I am today and why I feel so passionate about what I do but uh, I'm now on the inside trying to kind of change things rather than from the outside and, and even when it's not people descending on a on a community there's there's a lot of embedded racism and other forms Absolutely. of discrimination I mean in, in institutional racism is there I think institutional isms are there for many many groups and I think for me, the, what gives me the buzz in doing the job that I'm doing is even if I can make a small difference, it's a huge difference um, to people's lives, and especially in the NHS where we're dealing with life and death and making you know people who are ill. Looking back 30 years, if you're in the same position again, would you do it again? Yes, I would. <laughs> <laughs> Be warned. Be warned. My dad's not alive anymore to tell me, <laughs> oh, my God, what is she saying? Um, yes, I think I would. I think I think for me, I, um, in some respects, I think you, you know it wasn't all that's um, brilliant, but um, I think it was really good meeting Tariq in the second floor of the library in Bradford, Central Library in Bradford, and him educating me on saying because at that point I thought I'm British. And I remember then thinking many years later that I could actually change my name to Julie Smith. I sound very West Yorkshire, but people see who I am straight mm. away. So I think that was fantastic education for me. And actually, I think it's had um, an Im those early experiences has made me who I am today. I've been talking to Shanaz Ali about the 30th anniversary of the Bradford 12. And that, as usual, brings us to the end of another episode of Just Plain Sense. If you'd like to hear more, then the place to go is our website, podcast.plain-sense.co.uk. Take a look at the subscription options there as well, so you'll never miss subsequent shows. Join us again soon for another programme on a topic relating to equality and diversity. For now, though, it's goodbye, and thank you for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production. Music